0: Welcome to New Hope's Teaching Podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit NewHopepDX.org slash teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Have you ever thought about what you eat and why you eat it? In my late 20s, I started to pack on some extra pounds. And for the very first time in my life, I started to think about what I was eating and and why I was eating it. At the time, the diet craze was the, the South Beach diet. I don't know how many of you might remember that. And I went and I bought the book and I read it through and I applied the principles and I lost about 15 pounds. I was delighted and Then I slowly began to put the palates back on. And then the next craze was the slim fast diet, which was basically you don't eat solid food, you eat shakes. And I was really grumpy and uh, lost some weight and then put it back on. And that's kind of been a little bit of my journey. When I was diagnosed with heart disease a few years, I knew I needed to get serious about my diet. So I began to research and oh my goodness, there's so many passionate opinions about what we should be eating and why we should be eating it there is the the whole family of what I call the the low carb diets uh you know the Atkins and the South Beach and uh, the 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 keto diet and and all those kind of diets and then there's like uh the paleo diet some of you may have tried that and that's also called the caveman or cavewoman diet you, you eat like someone a long time ago and then there's the a lot of people have tried the the whole 30 diet and some people are doing Intermittent fasting, which means you go for like 20 hours and don't eat, and I've tried that and I get really grumpy. And when I met with my heart doctor and the nutritionist at Kaiser, they they recommended the Mediterranean diet, and that's that's what I typically do for my heart. And that means that I eat like somebody from from Greece. People feel passionate about what they eat. Uh, I think that that's. Uh, confronted me as I've tried to, to recently buy eggs. I don't know if you have the same uh, complexity and decision where you're trying to buy eggs nowadays, but I've stood in front of the, like the egg rack and there's so many choices. Uh, do, do you want your, your, your chickens to be cage-free and free range? Do you want them eating vegetarian feed or vegan feed or vegetarian organic feed? Do you want local chickens And if you want like all that together, your eggs are like $12. And that's not good stewardship. It just shows that we care deeply about what we eat and why we're eating it. I would simplify it to this point. What we eat matters. I think we know that intuitively. We know that practically. Jesus knew that as well. And Jesus steps into that idea today and illuminates it in a new way. Uh, We're in the fifth week of a series we're calling Encountering Jesus as a Study of the Gospel of John and John's intent in John twenty thirty one he tells us for his gospel is to help us know Jesus more so we can trust Jesus more, so we can find life in Jesus's name. And to accomplish that, John gives us a multitude of images to help us better know Jesus, trust Jesus, find life in Jesus's name. So we've been looking at a different image each week. Jesus the word, Jesus the temple, Jesus the well. Last week it was Jesus the light. And this week, it is Jesus the bread, if you hadn't guessed it already. And uh, Gary is going to be reading our scripture for us. Gary,
1: take it away. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Plenty of grass in that place and they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, "'Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted.' So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten." After the people saw the sign Jesus had performed, they began to say, "'Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world.'" Jesus, knowing that they intended to come, and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself." This is the word of the Lord. So this
0: idea uh, or image that we're gathering around uh, To explore today, Jesus the Bread. It runs throughout all of John 6. Gary read essentially the first scene from John 6, which is the foundation and an important scene to establish this image of Jesus the Bread. And we'll follow it throughout John 6, and I'll read some more bits of John 6 as we go. But let's explore briefly this opening scene from John 6 that that Gary read for us. It's an important scene. We know that because it's in all four of the Gospels. John sets the stage for us. He tells us we're on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, probably in one of the little fishing villages that were there. Jesus and his disciples were regularly around that area. It was kind of their home base. And Jesus has has a great crowd around him, uh, John tells us. This is still early on in his ministry. I call it the rock star stage of Jesus's ministry. He's teaching with power and his teaching is provocative and he's healing people and word is beginning to spread and this great crowd has gathered, probably local folks, fishermen and farmers and peasants, folks that that didn't have a lot of material things. And they're excited to be there and the crowd's building and there's frenzy and there's energy. It is kind of a rock star environment. But in this passage today and throughout John six, we'll see Jesus is gonna thin the herd remarkably. Uh, John also tells us that the Passover festival was near, and that's going to be an important detail in this passage to frame it out. Uh, Again, the Passover festival, we've talked about it previously in the series. It was one of the three pilgrim festivals that you were supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was kind of the high watermark of the Jewish calendar, celebrating uh, Israel's salvation, uh, from under the slavery in Egypt being set free from that. And each year they get together and they sacrifice and they have a meal and they retell the story. Jesus is going to reframe Passover and recreate the story essentially around uh, himself. But that uh, Detail is important to set the emotional tenor of the scene. There's excitement, there's energy. A lot of people are packing and getting ready to go to Jerusalem, preparing to have meals and see family they haven't seen in a long time, and to step into this incredible story of salvation uh, for God's people. It would be somewhat like uh, maybe your home is uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas. There's that energy in the air. So Jesus begins to teach and he's gonna teach metaphorically as he often does in John's gospel. Uh, He turns to Philip, one of his disciples, and he looks out at the crowd, he looks back at Philip and he just asks Philip a simple question. Uh, Philip, where are we going to get food to to feed all these people? And then John gives us an editorial comment, and John tells us that he was doing this to to test Peter because Jesus already had a plan. Jesus had it worked out in his mind, what he was about to teach the people and his young disciples uh, over the next day or two. Philip, as any of us would, thinks Jesus's question is ridiculous. John tells us that that day there were 5,000 men gathered. That means there were way more people there. There could have been as many as 15,000 people gathered there today. That's if you've ever gone to a blazer game in the Moda Center and it's packed out, that's essentially what that is. So imagine you're sitting in a packed out blazer game and you turn to a friend and said, where are we gonna find food for all these people? It's uh, kind of a preposterous question, especially in a time where you couldn't just run to the supermarket or order Uber Eats or or, or whatever. Uh, But Jesus is is, is trying to teach Philip here. Uh, And then Philip makes also the comment, Jesus is like, if we were to give, have enough food, somehow find enough food to give all these people just a bite, not a meal, but just a bite, it would take uh, half of a year's wages. Philip's like, "What, what kind of question is this? But Andrew, another disciple, is hearing this and seeing this interaction, and uh, they're kind of jockeying probably for Jesus' favor at this point early in the game. And uh, Andrew has an idea, and he looks down perhaps right in front of him, and there's a young boy, and his mom packed him a great lunch. And uh, Andrew's like, hey, that that kid uh, has some food. That kid has five loaves of, of bread and two salted fishes, and uh, it would be have been five loaves of, of barley, which at that day was Poor people's bread, that's what it was re- referred to as. It would be equivalent to five loaves of pita for us. Not not a lot. This wasn't a lot of food, but it was substantial for that kid. It was something, and Jesus doesn't need much to work with. Jesus, again, is Jesus the Word, the one who created everything out of nothing. So Jesus gets to work. He takes the lunch. Um, the young man, I, I would imagine, is odder that the rabbi takes his, his lunch. Jesus uh, stands in front of the, the crowd. Uh, he prays over it, uh, he gives thanks for it, and he breaks the bread. He's stepping into the standard role of the male head of a household at a Passover feast, which is an interesting component being the time of Passover. And then John tells us Jesus distributes the food or the bread it's kind of an interesting detail because the other Gospels, the other three Gospels, tell us what we probably already know, that the disciples helped distribute it. But John's honing in on the fact he wants us to see Jesus as the sole provider for this meal. So John is narrowing the language to so Jesus is the one uh, that passes it out. And then not only did everyone in the crowd, let's say there's 15,000 people there, the full motor center, not only did everyone in the crowd get a bite, John tells us that everybody was full everybody's bellies were bulging with food. And not only that, there were leftovers, 12 baskets, a very specific detail. At that time in the Roman Greco world, if you were to be a good host, you would have a feast, but the feast must always have leftovers if you're a good host and Jesus is a good host indeed. The people uh, who have had their fill understand that a miracle has happened. That's not lost on them. And uh, the crowd begins to say, John gives us the quote, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. That's meant to be a hyperlink for us readers, meaning a hyperlink, you click on it, it takes you somewhere else. The hyperlink takes us back To Moses, there's a connection piece with Moses here. Moses said that one day a prophet would come that would be like him. Moses was a rock star of of Jewish history. He was one of the most revered figures and prophets in Jewish history. If you know a little bit about the Old Testament, Moses is the one, he's the hero of the Passover who led God's people out, and, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Moses kind of kept them alive during that time and led them. He led them through the Red Sea. He provided them manna from the sky to feed them. And so Moses is revered. And Moses said, one day a prophet like me will arrive. So the, God's people around this time, around Jesus' time, are looking for this Messiah, this figure to come. And they many of them were looking for someone like Moses a a political liberator that would remove them um, from the oppression of the Roman Empire and someone who would care for their tangible needs. So here comes Jesus, and Jesus is stepping into the shoes of Moses in a very intentional way. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing to elicit this type of response from the people. And so uh, Jesus then says he knows that the people, Jesus is kind of seeing what's happening. He knew at that point that they were going to try and come and seize him by force and make him king. The The language is, is one of, of, of power dynamics and violence. And so John tells us literally Jesus ran for the hills. Uh, he wasn't ready yet. It wasn't his time yet. And that wasn't the type of kingdom he was coming. Uh, he was, he, that was, that was going to bring. He was going to be a different type of king that didn't work with the power dynamics. Jesus would flip everything on his head and Jesus didn't bring his kingdom come through violence, but through sacrificial death. He literally ran away from the people's misguided political ambitions. So then we kind of enter the next scene we're told that you know the disciples must have meandered off Jesus and kind of <laughs> escaped the crowd and they go to the shore of Galilee there a lot of them are fishermen this is their their home territory uh, there's boats there and he sends the disciples out on their way across the sea of Galilee and he goes another way. I'm not sure what he tells them, but he goes another way. And then there's a storm, and that's that's uh, a frequent occurrence on the Sea of Galilee because of where it's at, and, and the hills around it, and the winds, and there's a storm. They're frightened. Jesus walks on the water towards them, and they see him coming. He enters the boat, and then boom, they're on the shore, and they land in Capernaum. Cool trick. Now, as we're reading John 6, um, we could see this as like, where does this story fit in? How does this fit in with this imagery of Jesus, the bread? We could uh, kind of throw away the story and say, why is that in there? It's weird, but it, it's very intentionally placed there. If you think back to the connection of Moses, Moses' two big miracles, if you will, were delivering the people through watery death through the, through, through the Red Sea. Uh, that's essentially what happened here on the Sea of Galilee and then feeding people with manna. So Jesus is stepping into kind of both of those miracles. If you're a reader and you know your Old Testament history, you're like, ah, I see what's going on. Jesus is fully connecting himself with this expectation of being uh, the new Moses or the next Moses. So uh, a map will come up and kind of show what's going on here. The people, uh, Jesus disappears. uh, They're still clamoring to make him king and amazed by his miracles and his healing. They try to find him, like, where did he go? Where did he disappear to? So some of them go by boat, some of them go around the shore, and there'll be a map coming up. We think that Jesus was did the feeding somewhere kind of, if you're looking at the map, on the right side of the map, over in that direction, I think it should be indicated. And then they kind of went across the upper part of the Sea of Galilee to the city of Capernaum, which, as best we know, was Jesus' headquarters for his ministry Operation. So the crowd finds him, and at this point, it's probably a mixed crowd people from Capernaum that weren't at the feeding, and then those who were at the feeding, who either hiked or made their way by boat. They find him, and Jesus is in the synagogue teaching, and he knows all this. He's been setting all of this up to come to this point of fully stepping into this image of Jesus uh, the bread. So they're coming and essentially Jesus kind of calls about it like, oh, you're looking for more free food. You're looking for a free lunch. And he tells them, he challenges them not to work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And then they ask a logical question. Well, what do we do to work for that? And Jesus simply responds, believe in me. Here's our first indication that something new is happening. Something unexpected is happening. Believe in me, which is an odd answer from their perspective. Then they demand a sign from Jesus. It was believed that there was a storehouse, a treasury in heaven that kept the manna and that Moses essentially unlocked that storehouse and manna would fall, if you know that story, from the 40 years and and, and feed God's people. That was kind of the the Jewish idea. So the people want to know how Jesus does does Jesus have the same key to the storehouse from heaven? Is that what happened in the miracle? Some of them experience it firsthand, some of them are are hearing about it in real time. It's an ironic request uh, for a sign, since Jesus essentially just fed the entire motor Center with a kid's lunch. But nonetheless, Jesus is, is patient. And Jesus reminds them, back to the Old Testament story with Moses, it wasn't Moses who provided the manna from heaven, but it was God himself. And then the people have another logical response. They say, sir, uh, give us some of that uh, bread from heaven, is their phrase. This is similar to how the woman at the well a couple weeks ago when we talked about Jesus, the well, how she responded to Jesus when he positioned himself as the well or the living water. She said, sir, can you give me some of that water? So it's an earnest request on on their behalf. Then things start to get tense. Jesus ups the ante, if you will, and makes this game changing statement. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. John then tells us the people grumble at this, which is yet another connection point to the, to the Israelites in the desert who often grumbled even though God was giving them all this provision. They grumble because I think they begin to start to understand something new was going on. Uh, Jesus wasn't just offering them bread from heaven like Moses did. Jesus was doing that, but Jesus was also claiming to be the bread from heaven. Huge distinction. Moses, the hero of the Passover, is being superseded by Jesus who is claiming himself to be the bread. It's a pretty radical statement. In fact, you could, you could say one of the most radical things Jesus ever said was about a loaf of bread and, and calling himself the bread from heaven. The, uh, the people, again, I think being compassionate towards them would respond like, like many of us would. A lot of these folks grew up with Jesus. It's a relatively small town, and it's likely his parents and his siblings live there, and they watch this kid grow up. And they literally say in this discourse, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? Imagine you grew up in a small town, and some kid that was maybe quiet and a nice kid from, you know, middle school, high school, suddenly claims to be the source of all. It would be disorienting. It would be hard to believe, to be gracious to the people there. Jesus stays on point. Uh, He doesn't evade. He actually presses in even further, and he repeats the statement. He says this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread which comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Say what? (laughs) You thought it was awkward before. Now it's getting really tense. This is the first of seven I am statements, statements Jesus makes about himself that begin with I am. And in every instance, Jesus is taking a well-known metaphor or theme or idea from Israel's history and reinterpreting it around himself. The people, once again, ask a very logical question. This kid they grew up with from Galilee, they ask, how can we eat this man's flesh? That's a very logical question based off what Jesus says. Jesus basically tells them to stop whining, and then he presses in even further. Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The people (laughs) must have been scandalized. And this is where the the crowd begins to thin. The rock star aura is wearing off remarkably fast. Jesus is not (laughs) suggesting cannibalism. Interestingly enough, the early Christians were accused of that by Greco-Roman Onlookers who misunderstood what the communion table was. Jesus is is using a metaphor. He's using symbolic language, but a a, a radical language is needed for a radical claim. And make no mistake, while Jesus is not suggesting cannibalism in any way, shape, or form, he's making a very radical claim. Jesus is not only offering bread from heaven, he is claiming to be bread from heaven. He's not just trying to reenact. What Moses did. He's clearly attempting to supersede uh, what Moses did. Jesus is offering himself as the bread from heaven. In 2004, I watched a documentary, maybe you remember it, called Supersize Me. It was nominated for an Academy Award. This filmmaker, uh, Morgan Spurlock, at the time he was 32 and in above average health. He was concerned about the obesity epidemic in America, and he wanted to make a documentary kind of about that. So he decided to eat at McDonald's for 30 days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And for 30 days, he could eat nowhere else. So he lays out the beginning of the documentary kind of this, this goal. And he, ha- he had a physical at the beginning, and all the metrics were taken, and then he was going to compare and see where he landed at the end. I think he had to eat everything off the McDonald's menu at some point over the 30 days. Uh, During that month, he gained 24 pounds. Uh, He gained 13% body fat, and his cholesterol skyrocketed to 230. Uh, On day 21, he started to actually have heart palpitations and had to be rushed in to see, and the doctors told him he should pull out at day 21. That he was uh, that this that this uh, documentary was having disastrous effects on his health and he as I guess a dedicated filmmaker stayed with it um, It took him uh, a, about a over a year to work off all the weight that he had gained and, and get himself back to the metrics that he was in before he filmed the, the documentary now no shame on you if you like McDonald's. I, I rocked McDonald's from like late teens through much of my, my 20s. So no judgment, uh, occasional meal at McDonald's is good. But I don't think any of you, even fans of McDonald's, would say that it would be good to eat at McDonald's every day for a month, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, that could actually probably kill you. Uh, we're not meant to be sustained on a diet like that. It's not good for us. Back to our opening point, what we eat matters that's true physically and it's also true spiritually the people in the story they were longing to just get the same thing the people in the desert got a long time ago and those people were sustained for 40 years from this bread from heaven but they died it it didn't sustain them they eventually died the people that jesus had fed the previous day that showed up in capernaum they were hungry again even though jesus miraculously fed them it didn't sustain them and they just wanted more of that. I would say, like like us, they were far too easily pleased. Jesus didn't want to ask, uh, just offer them a temporal fix. Jesus wanted to give them the ultimate, ultimate fix. Jesus wanted to turn them to the thing that would actually end their spiritual hunger and not keep them just coming back for more. I think just like these people, if we can step into this and begin to apply this story for ourselves, we are far too easily pleased we often go for the spiritual equivalent of the mcdonald's diet we want something that's that's quick and convenient and not too costly and it ends up just not leaving us well and leaving us hungry yet again we try cheap substitutes to replace the only one who can ultimately sustain us, Jesus. And some of these cheap substitutes are, would be things um, like human relationships or, or our image or our appearance or uh, success or wealth or possessions, accomplishment, uh, pleasure, escape. None of these things in and of themselves are bad, but when we look to them to ultimately sustain us, they're bad. Just like a Big Mac is not inherently bad, but if you look to a Big Mac as your only way to sustain you, it will fail you every time. It will leave us hungry. Jesus, the bread, that's the image we're meant to rally around. Uh, The idea of bread in the first century context is meant to suggest sustenance. It was the main staple of their diet. It's how they stayed alive. That's the idea here. Uh, John wants us to know that Jesus is the only one who sustains us. Jesus is the only one that will not leave us hungry. Jesus is the only one in a spiritual sense that can give us life. It's interesting in the Greek Jesus declares in verse 55 if you want to look back at that that he offers real food. I don't that's a whole nother food movement that's out there, the real food movement, like only eat what you grow in your garden and what you kill with your own hands and it's that kind of deal. Jesus uh offers the first real food movement if you will. Remember uh, John's goal in his gospel that we would uh know Jesus more, that we would trust Jesus more, that we would find life in his name. Uh, John is once again positioning Jesus through this image of the bread as the giver of life. Let me just challenge you, and I'm challenging myself with this question as well. What is it that you and I look to for sustenance? What is it that you and I look to uh, to give us life? That's the question that John's putting before us that we can't evade as we're stepping into this passage. At the end of chapter 6, we're told that many of Jesus' disciples were perplexed by his teaching, including his core disciples. Uh, They declared it hard to accept. I don't blame them. John tells us, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's a sobering scene. It's kind of rock star status. All these people around the very person who is the source of life, suddenly many of them, if not most of them, going their own way, choosing to stay with the cheap substitutes instead of abandoning everything they'd always looked to to sustain them and looking to Jesus alone, which is a costly endeavor. It was too much for most of them, and they walked away. We we see the same thing happening in in our day. Uh, Statistics uh, tell us that one in four Americans now claim to have no religious affiliation Many of those are are ex-Christians. During COVID over this last uh, year, uh, surveys tell us one in three people have stopped engaging uh, with church altogether, Uh, the three people being like one in three people who were engaged uh, previously. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, the way of Jesus has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. We get from John six that following Jesus, going all in on Jesus, uh, abandoning our old way of living and our old cheap substitutes to sustain us and going all in, for, it's a costly endeavor. And, and Jesus wanted the crowd to know that that day. Many walk away when confronted with that. And I think we see that in this day and age. But I think there's something else going on too. And I wanna be careful not to read into too many people's stories that I don't know their full, full story. But being in tr- American church for a long time now, I think seeing it as being too difficult is one reason people walk away, but I think there is another reason on the flip side of that. I think many people are walking away because they are uh, rejecting this kind of cheap Christianity, this fake substitute Christianity that many churches have started to offer. They're rejecting, if you will, the McDonald's diet version of Christianity. I don't think they're rejecting the real thing. I don't think that they've ever been confronted with the real thing. It would be like saying, uh, you don't like Mexican food because you don't like Taco Bell. I would just respond, you've never really had Mexican food. Uh, that's just my hunch, but I think that, that I am correct. Uh, and, and I'm not in the business of talking about what's going on in other churches. I don't have any specific churches in mind. It's just, it's just my experience of hearing people's stories. I hope that you as New Hope will keep us accountable to that. That's certainly not what we ever wanna do. We, we want to continually offer Jesus as the source of sustenance, as the bread of life. We want Jesus to be the appetizer, the side salad, the main course, the dessert always. And if you ever uh, sense that we're, that we're uh, removing ourselves from that pursuit, please uh, call us on that. I'm encouraged though in the scene in John 6 that not everyone walked away. Uh, it continues, and Jesus uh, turns to his disciples, who are maybe some of the only ones still left after his his teaching. He says, uh, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. As we're looking at all this imagery of Jesus inviting us into partaking of his very life, of like to use this like radical language, he's using metaphorically, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is just like, oh, it's 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 radical because it's meant to awaken us to how radical it is to place our faith in Jesus. What well, what what does it look like to partake in Jesus? What does it look like to eat his flesh and drink his blood? I think Jesus tells us several times in the passage that that's just a way of him saying he's calling us to deeper belief in him. Here's an example. for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Uh, there, there's, there's a big difference though between beliefs about Jesus and believing in Jesus. Let me repeat that. There's a big difference between having beliefs about Jesus and having belief in jesus go go back to peter's testimony which was a remarkable reply where else will we go you have the words of life you're the holy one of israel when he says holy one he's using a a title that was used of god himself from the old testament jewish readers uh, would have known that you know who else used that title for jesus you know who used it first in the gospels demons demons that's sobering because demons had the right beliefs about Jesus. And too often in church, we hear all we got to do is have the right beliefs about Jesus. Not true. Even demons have that. But demons did not have belief in Jesus. And that's what he's inviting us to do in a radical way. Saving faith is not having beliefs about Jesus. Saving faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life. It is literally putting our lives in his hands. A couple of years ago, we took our girls to Disneyland. I, my wife and I had never been. It was, it was an awesome trip. And our first day there, no joke, uh, our girls had never been on a lot of amusement park rides. They'd never uh, been on a roller coaster. The first day there, within a few hours, uh, we're standing in line for the Incredicoaster. <laughs> our girls are eight and 11 at the time. Don't judge us as parents. I know what you're thinking. That's just how the rose and steels roll, go big or go home. So as we stood in line for like an hour and a half waiting in line, I mean, you, it, it's huge, it's loud, it's, if you've never gone, it's scary, they didn't know what to expect, they were kind of trembling a little bit, and we spent all that time just encouraging them, like it's totally safe, they get checked all the time by the state, and we talked about engineering and the strength of steel and how physics work and all these kind of things, and we're their parents, right, They're they're, they're predisposed to trust us. So they believed that about the roller coaster. They, they took our words at face value and they believed. But they didn't believe in the roller coaster until they were strapped in. They really didn't believe in the roller coaster until they were strapped in, going down that first epic drop, screaming their heads off, holding on for dear life. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do what about you? Do, 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 do you just believe things about Jesus? Or, or do, you, do you connect with the crowd that day, which maybe, yeah, all your experience with Christianity has been kind of coming for the free lunch, and it's been fast and easy and convenient, and that's no shame or blame. That's a lot of uh, church in America. That's not what is going on in this passage, and that's not what following Jesus is supposed to look like. We're supposed to go all in. We're not supposed to waste our lives seeking out cheap substitutes that leave us hungry, that leave us coming back for more. Jesus is offering us himself as the one who, the only one who can say. and he's offering us himself as the, one, uh, the only one uh, who can give us true life. What we eat matters. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this image of Jesus, the bread. And God, right now, I, I know there's people uh, watching this that I hope by your spirit, they're challenged by, uh, by the words of the passage. Maybe something that, that I said today, hopefully, that was led by your spirit. And um, I think this passage is a, a call for all of us, a wake-up call of what it really looks like to not have beliefs about Jesus, but to put our faith fully in Jesus, to, to hold on to Jesus for dear life, to put our lives in his hands. And there's some listening right now, God, um, as I pray, that that are feeling moved by your spirit for the first time uh, to do that, to stop playing around, to stop spending their life trying to find sustenance in life and things that always leave them hungry. And there's ones listening today that want to be done with that. They're exhausted by that. And they want to come to you uh, for true life. They want to come to you for sustenance. You're the only one that can offer that. And God, uh, I pray pray if you're out there and you're feeling that, that that offer is just for you right now, just to step in and say yes, and begin to look to Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, that rose again and forever broke the power of sin and death, to be the one that fully sustains us, to be the one every day that gives us life. God, may we collectively new hope. May we be a church that holds on to your son, Jesus, for dear life. May we consistently uh, put our lives in his hands. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.